0: Welcome to a History of Europe, Key Battles, The Rise of Muscovy and the Battle of Kulikova, Part 2 of 2. Grand Prince Ivan I of Moscow, also known as Ivan Kalita, is one of the most celebrated of Russian medieval princes, credited with building the foundations for Moscow's future successes. Known for his great wealth, hence his nickname Kalita, which means moneybags, Ivan was able to buy lands around Moscow from impoverished local landowners. Also important was the decision in 1325 of Metropolitan Peter to move his residence to Ivan's capital and to prepare a tomb for himself in a new stone church of the Domitian as way of explanation the term metropolitan was the word used for the local orthodox church leader similar in some ways to the position of archbishop in this period only one metropolitan was assigned to russia so from that time on it was moscow which was to be the residence of the head of the russian orthodox hierarchy and its princes played the role of primary protectors of the church moreover in 1339 Peter was canonised by his successor Theognostus, turning Moscow into a centre of pilgrimage. Ivan final great success was to ensure the succession of his eldest son Simeon to the position of a grand prince upon his death in 1340. Simeon, reigned 1340 to 1353, proved to be an equally capable leader. He responded energetically to the eastward thrust of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, successfully defending the border town of Smolensk in 1352. He was also quick to deal with any sign of dissension from Novgorod, and so was able to continue controlling and exploiting its great wealth. Simeon died in 1353, a victim of the Black Death, which devastated Russian lands in 1352 and 1353. As in Western Europe, the disease struck hardest in urban areas, beginning with Peskov and Novgorod. From there it spread throughout Russian lands and hit Moscow particularly hard. After the first wave, the Black Death, returned to Moscow in 1364 to 1366 and then recurred several times until 1425. Although we have regrettably little hard information about the plague's impact on Russian lands, Robert O'Kromany believes that just in Western Europe it is likely that a third of the total population of Russia perished from the disease. Although an effective leader in general, Simon had been unable to continue the growth of territory achieved by his father. He was succeeded by Ivan II, known as the Meek, for his unimpressive rule and lack of vigour in protecting his western border against Lithuanian aggression. It appeared that the expansion of Moscow had been checked by the other princes of Russia. Tver was still a strong independent city, and the city of Suzdal merged with another Nizhny Novgorod to form another Grand Principality in 1341, which challenged the primacy of the Danilovich Princes of Moscow. Also, the city of Ryazan, which had previously displayed deference to Moscow, began to engage in a border dispute for control over a stretch of the Oka River. The princes of Rostov and Yaroslav were also trying to remove themselves from the Muscovite authority. Most serious of all, the citizens of Novgorod strove to give themselves a greater degree of independence, so threatening the flow of silver to Moscow, which was vital to the funding of their power base. Also significant in this period was that the division between northeast and southwest Russia became even deeper when the latter entered the political sphere of Lithuania. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania was a rapidly expanding and ambitious power which was demonstrating increasing influence over affairs in Novgorod and other northern Russian cities. Yet greater challenges for the princes of Moscow were soon to follow. Their political position was dependent upon the goodwill and power of the Khans of the Golden Horde, and so when in 1359 Khan Berdebeck was overthrown and civil war erupted among the Tatar leaders, the basis of Muscovite primacy, suddenly became destabilised. When the son and successor of Ivan II, named Dmitri, assumed the throne in November 1359, he could not turn to the other princes who had not fully accepted the legitimacy of the Danunovitchi. The, the continued preeminence of the House of Moscow in northeast Russia was in jeopardy. Young Prince Dmitri, later known as Dmitri Donsky, faced many challenges when he became head of the House of Moscow at the tender age of just nine. Fortunately for Dmitry, in his earlier years, he was ably assisted by the metropolitan Alexei, who during his minority, became, in effect, ruler of Moscow. The overthrowing of Khan Berdebek triggered a period of political upheaval. During the next twenty years, the throne at Sarai changed hands at least a dozen times. On occasion, two rival Khans simultaneously claimed the throne. In addition, the range of Sarai Khan's authority, contracted as parts of the Horde territory, recognised the leadership of local khans, so that at times as many as seven khans controlled different sections of the Horde's domain. Clan leaders outside the traditional ruling Genghisid dynasty also started to play major roles. Chief among them was a military leader named Mamai, whose power base was the western territory of the Golden Horde. He exercised his authority indirectly by supporting his own candidates for the Sarai throne, who were, in effect, mere puppet-leaders. This was also the period of the build-up of power of most probably the greatest Mongol warlord since Genghis Khan, Tamerlane. As Tamerlane built a mighty empire in Central Asia, he drew an energetic young prince, Toqtamesh, into his service. Toqtamesh, with the support of his patron, built up his own forces and moved westwards into the territory of the Golden Horde. All this meant that when the princes of Russia went to Sarai in 1359 to receive their patents from the successor of Berdebeck, things were changing so quickly that a new Khan had assumed the throne. He issued the grand principality not to Dmitri Ivanovich of Moscow, but to the rival prince of Suzdal and Nizhny Novgorod, Dmitri Konstantinovich. This act was a consequence of the growing opposition to Muscovite power among the princes of Russia during the reign of Ivan II. The turmoil continued next year when the Khan was overthrown, and the Russian princes returned to the Horde to receive again their patents. By this time, however, the situation in the Horde had become generally more violent, and the princes were subjected to personal abuse and had their property stolen. Thereafter, the Russian princes refrained from travelling to the Horde in person, sending instead personal agents to pay homage to the Khans, and receive patents on their behalf. It was under these conditions that Dmitry Ivanovich of Moscow recovered the key title of Grand Prince of Vladimir. In 1362 he was recognised as such by the current Khan in Sarai, named Murid. The government of Moscow, led by Metropolitan Alexei, uncertain of who was in charge of the horde, approached his rival Mamé and received his sanction as well. It seemed like a sensible move, but the act angered Khan Murid, who in retaliation withdrew his patent and recognised instead Dmitry of Nizhny Novgorod as Grand Prince. Two years later, however, after a show of force by the Muscovite army, the leaders of Nizhny Novgorod backed down and abandoned their claims. In 1366, peace was established between the two cities by the strategic marriage of Dmitry of Moscow to the daughter of his namesake in Nizhny Novgorod. Dmitry of Moscow also in this period reasserted his authority over a pair of minor neighbouring principalities, and formed a close working relationship with his cousin Vladimir Andreevich. This was important as one of the key reasons for the success of the Daninovich dynasty of Moscow was their unity, in stark contrast to Dver, which especially after the failed rebellion in 1327 suffered almost continuous division among its rulers. In the 1360s and 1370s, the rulers of Tver made one more attempt to challenge Moscow, uniting behind their energetic young prince named Michael. Michael was backed up by the diplomatic and military support of his brother-in-law, Alagiyaras, Grand Prince of Lithuania. When in 1386 full-scale war broke out between the two cities, Michael called in a Lithuanian army, which quickly counter-attacked and advanced to the gates of Moscow. The Muscovites held out but were forced into ceding some territory. The alliance of Tver with Lithuania, however, had its downsides. Algerus's intervention made Michael Tver appear to be the agent of a foreign power when increasingly drawn to Roman Catholic Europe. So in the end, Dmitry was able to retain the loyalty of most of the Russian princes. In September 1375, with the Lithuanian attentions diverted elsewhere, the Muscovites were able to force Michael to accept a treaty in which he acknowledged Grand Prince Dmitri of Moscow as his elder brother, and so finally bring a resolution to the decades-long struggle between Tver and Moscow. While these events were taking place, trouble broke out between the Tatars and the citizens of Nizhny Novgorod. This principality guarded the Volga Valley and served as the main eastern defence post of the Russian lands. Working closely with the Grand Prince Dmitry of Moscow, the local rulers strengthened their region's defences. Mamey sent troops to the city in 1374, but the people there revolted and massacred any Tartar they could find. Mamey was enraged, but was so preoccupied elsewhere it took him three years to send another force to sack the city as revenge. His position had become seriously threatened by his chief Mongol rival, Tokhtamesh, as described earlier, an ally of the Great Tamerlane. Mamey therefore had the difficult choice of either confronting Tokhtamesh immediately, or first to force the unruly Russian principalities into submission. In 1378 it decided on the latter, and sent an army into northeast Russia, where they were confronted by an army assembled by Dmitry of Moscow. The result was a stunning, though not decisive victory for the Russians, who were able to repel the Mongolian army. After this unexpected defeat, Mamei made great diplomatic and military efforts to organise a much larger campaign into Russia to subdue the rebels. He mobilised a large army and enlisted Moscow's enemies as allies, including the new Duke of Lithuania, named Jogaila, and Prince Oleg of the city of Ryazan. As a border town between Russia and the Mongols, Ryazan was in an unenviable situation of being constantly exposed to attack, and so its leaders decided not to resist the forces of Mamé. And so, by the autumn of 1380, a major clash between Moscow and Mamé became inevitable. The main forces of Mamé crossed the river Volga and moved slowly north to meet their enemies in the basin of the Oka River. Prince Dmitry, meanwhile, gathered his forces from various Russian cities to confront the invasion. On the 7th of September, his combined forces crossed the Don, arriving at the site of the battle, the fields of Kulikova. Mamei was unable to link up with his allies, Jogaila of Lithuania or Oleg of Ryazan, either because he was not given the time to do so, or because they were simply unreliable. His army did, however, contain a contingent of Genoese soldiers. Grand Prince Dmitry arranged his army into multiple lines. In the vanguard with the elite Russian troops backed up by a large force of regular soldiers behind them and then a contingent of reserves at the back. He positioned his army so that his flanks were covered by dense forests to try and prevent the horde from launching a surprise attack from the sides. Mamey organised his troops in a similar fashion. On the morning of September the 8th, A thick fog covered the fields of Kudakova, preventing battle from being joined. But at about 11 o'clock, the fog cleared and both armies began to advance. The first main charge came from the Tatars, forcing the Russians to slowly retreat. Mamey next sent his cavalry reserves against the Russian left flank in an attempt to create a break in the Russian lines. Despite strong resistance from the Russian troops, the Horde's army managed to break through the Russian lines at this point. After three hours of intense battle, the Tatar cavalry had forced their way to the rear of the Russian troops, and there was a real threat that the Russian forces would be surrounded and destroyed. At that moment, however, the reserve forces, led by Dimitri's cousin, the variant Vladimir Andreevich, sprang from ambush and quickly regained the initiative. The unexpected influx of fresh Russian troops changed the situation dramatically, causing panic among the Tartars and forcing them into a retreat, which turned into a rout. The Russians pursued them till late in the evening and so achieved a decisive and complete victory. Grand Prince Dmitry Ivanovich was given the nickname Donskoy to commemorate his great victory near the banks of the River Don. Mame fled south in disarray and his fortunes quickly went from bad to worse. In the following year, Toktamesh crushed his army on the banks of the Kalka River. When he fled to Crimea for refuge, the Genoese murdered him. Later generations saw the Battle of Kulikova as a great triumph of the Russian people over their oppressive overlords and the beginning of serious resistance to Tatar domination, whose rule they overthrew the next century. However, in the short term, the Golden Horde quickly regained the upper hand. Once Tokhtamysh had destroyed Mamai, he turned on his rebellious Russian subjects, mounting a large punitive expedition in 1382. The Khan's forces sacked Moscow and forcefully re-established his authority over Northeast Russia. Dmitry quickly fell in line and accepted his patent as Grand Prince under the authority of the Golden Horde. In the long term, the victory at Kulikovo gave great prestige to the princes of Moscow. Over the next generations, the battle became the focal point of numerous chronicles, poems and tales, which were written to proclaim the victory of Orthodox Christianity over foreign tyranny. The myths of the battle, as much as the practical aspects, greatly influenced the formation of a united Russian state and the creation of a Russian national consciousness. I'd like to mention four caveats on the myth of Moscow as the centre of Russian resistance. Firstly, Alexander Nevsky, the revered ancestor of the Danilovitchi clan, actively collaborated with Mongols and helped put out rebellions of Russians against their rule. Secondly, to their bravely resisted, the Mongols in 1327, but lost to Moscow because its revolt was unsuccessful and indeed put down with the help of Ivan I of Moscow. Thirdly, by challenging the traditional laws of succession to the title of Grand Prince, the princes of Moscow were compromised into becoming more dependent on the power of the Khans. And fourthly, in the Battle of Kurikova, Dmitry Donskoy revolted not against the legitimate authority of the Khans, but against the usurper of that authority. Mamai. Sergei Praki, in his book *The Origins of Slavic Nations*, describes the traditional narrative of Russian resistance against the Mongols as often a myth, devised later by Rus princes and church hierarchy to glorify their ancestors' past and vilify the Golden Horde. In fact, the term Tartar yoke itself came into existence much later. The biggest beneficiaries of Mongol rule were the same Grand Princes and churchmen in Moscow, who, thanks to the help of the Khans, were able to centralise power into their own hands. The main losers were the regional leaders, and especially in Novgorod the civic government of the Vietch system, since Mongol rule halted the spread of traditional democracy and self-government for the various principalities. Whether for good, bad or mixture, northeastern eastern Rus emerged from the period of Mongol rule, different from those regions that did not experience the long rule of the Khans. The Grand Princes and their people adopted certain aspects of Asian culture and institutions and became more eastern-looking. In the meantime, their deep Christian roots helped maintain a link with European culture. And as will be described in later episodes, Moscow in the 15th and 16th century finally emerged triumphant and went on to become a major world power. Precisely a hundred years after Kudakova, in 1480, it was one of Dmitry's successors, Ivan III, the Great, of Moscow, who was able to throw off Tartar rule once and for all. In 1380, Moscow's rise to preeminence was by no means complete, but its rulers were well on their way to the creation of a great power. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not consider going to iTunes and giving the podcast a review? I've heard different stories about whether it really helps the uh, the ratings much, but I can tell you for sure that a good review makes me very happy for the day. And I can also tell you that, well, I think it's very useful as well to anybody else looking at the podcast and thinking about listening to it. There are some great reviews on there, not only complimentary about my podcast, but also uh, describing it really well, what it's really all about. And thank you for all of those. I'd like to give a thank you to Michelle for her recent contribution. Also to my Patreon.com supporters for keeping with me. Speaking of which, I have chosen to make the next battle available exclusively to my Patreon.com supporters. That battle will be the Battle of Nicopolis of 1396, That's when uh, groups of knights, warriors, crusaders from all around Europe got together to try and push back the Ottoman advance into Eastern Europe. It's sometimes called the Last Crusade because it's at a time when the traditional chivalry and ideals of crusading was waning. The next battle after that, which will be available on iTunes and all the usual channels, will be the Battle of Grunwald, also known as the Battle of Tannenberg, which took place in 1410. That's when the Kingdom of Poland and Grand Duchy of Lithuania got together to fight the Teutonic Knights for supremacy of the the Baltic lands. As always, any feedback in any form is really, really useful. So thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles.